Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Thursday, March 8th, 2018. Now, I didn't talk about this yesterday, but you'll note that there was no program for Monday or Tuesday of this week. Just to let you all know, you haven't missed it. They were not produced due to uh, personal health challenge, is the best way I can put it. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down. Stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being set out there, and we take the time to open up God's Word to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, <gasps> self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we need to be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine, that's teaching that is put forward by these most popular people and the evangelical industrial complex, like, isn't even biblical. It's oftentimes now it's not even lucid. It's just bonkers, crazy, twisting of Scripture, totally missing the point. The people who are teaching clearly do not know how to rightly handle God's Word. They have not studied, showed themselves approved. They are completely ignorant of what the historic, and I'm going to use an offensive word here, Catholic, small c, universal, uh, church has historically believed, taught, confessed, and even been martyred for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, they're far from that nowadays. So let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. This is going to be a slightly different format program again. I am grinding on some things theologically as well as in my personal study. And uh, what we're going to do today is um, we're going to challenge the claims of of Michael Brown regarding the so-called New Apostolic Reformation. And we're going to do so on two fronts, which means the program format completely changed today. We are going to first begin with a a true uh, New Apostolic Reformation update, and we're going to be listening to the late C. Peter Wagner, whom Michael Brown has actually worked with in the past. And we're going to note something quite simple here. 
if it's the so-called NAR and belief in the New Apostolic Reformation is akin to believing in you know, black ops operations where, you know, conspiracy theorists are saying that the Illuminati did a false flag thing to destroy the Twin Towers, yeah, which is how uh, Michael Brown uh, basically mischaracterizes, and I mean that, mischaracterizes the people who are shedding light on the NAR, then why is it that C. Peter Wagner was so open about the New Apostolic Reformation, calling it the New Apostolic Reformation, and claiming when he was alive that it was the fastest growing movement in Christianity. It, it was just I, we're going to listen to those claims, and then we're going to change it up. We're going to do a sermon review starting in hour number one. We're going to head over to Bethel Church in Redding, California. And uh, which, you know, is run by the apostle Bill Johnson. And we noted a few weeks back that uh, Bill Johnson was declared to be an apostle by none other than C. Peter Wagner himself at uh, Todd Bentley's apostolic alignment ceremony. This is just historical fact. And um, there at Bethel Church in Redding, California, I've got a sermon from May of last year. From Chris Vallotton, who is like, you know, one of the major leaders at Bethel Church. And the name of his sermon is, What is an Apostle? And we're going to note that Chris Vallotton's uh, descriptors, descriptors of, of an apostle seem to comport rather handily with some of the things that we're going to hear see Peter Wagner talk about. And so you know, this will be one of those things where we basically say, if it's the so-called New Apostolic Reformation, and if Bethel has nothing to do with it, then why is C. Peter Wagner so open about it and claiming that it's the fastest-growing movement in Christianity? And Chris Vallotton, as well, early as May of last year, was teaching some of the primary tenets of the New Apostolic Reformation. Yeah, it's just kind of weird, you know? It's just one of those things where, you know, if this is you know, Illuminati, you know, conspiracy theory kind of uh, stuff. Why is it that all the people we've been pointing to talk about it, teach its tenets and things like that, despite the protestations of uh, Dr. Michael Brown, that uh, that this is all just conspiracy theory stuff. So that's what we're going to be doing on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Strongly recommend you make yourself comfortable. we got a lot of ground we need to cover. And uh, since we're going to be doing a new apostolic reformation stuff today, let's do this. Chief, man, what do you want to do tonight? Same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. They're Pinky and the Brain. Yes, Pinky and the Brain. One is a genius, the other's insane. They're laboratory mice. Their genes have been sliced. They're Pinky. They're Pinky and the Brain. Brain, 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 brain. Before each night is done. Their plan will be unfurled By the dawning of the sun They'll take over the world The Pinky and the Brain Yes, Pinky and the Brain The Twilight campaign Is easy to explain To prove their mousy worth They'll overthrow the earth The Pinky, the Pinky and the Brain Brain, 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 brain. 
All right, so we're heading over to YouTube, and the name of the lecture we're going to be listening to a portion of is titled C. Peter Wagner Lectures on the New Apostolic Reformation. Mm-hmm. Okay, if it's the so-called New Apostolic Reformation, and nobody has ever seemed to have heard of it, why is it that I could so easily find you know, the leaders that we've been pointing to for years talking so openly about the New Apostolic Reformation. Here's C. Peter Wagner. Here we go. Okay, now, they're, 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 uh, the first, first of all, I want to repeat something. You have to write it down because you already have it in your notes. But I want to remind you that the New Apostolic Reformation is the most radical change in the way of doing church since the Protestant Reformation. That's what we're... All right, the most radical way in doing church since the Protestant Reformation. By the way, the name of the official, the official name of the lecture was Hitching Apostles to Prophets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you know your C. Peter Wagner uh, library of you know lectures and teachings and stuff like that, this is where you can find that. That's what we're dealing with. That's what we're springing off into the 21st century with. And um, well, one thing that I, uh, that I want everybody to understand, and, and Global Awakening is a part of this, and I'm not trying to say this, arrogantly, but I'm trying to, to, for us to get the movement of the Spirit of God um, in the world today, and that is that what the Spirit of God is bringing about in the New Apostolic Reformation is the largest and the fastest growing block of Christianity around the world. All right, so largest, fastest growing block in, of Christianity around the world, the New Apostolic Reformation is, according to the late C. Peter Wagner. Hmm. How could it be the so-called New Apostolic Reformation if it's the fastest growing and largest block of Christianity around the world? You know, just how can it be so-called? It is it is very large. Now what we know, we even know more about it now than we did when the World Christian Encyclopedia came out. But in David Barrett and the World Christian Encyclopedia, which was the most intense research project ever done on the World Christian Movement, three volumes, three huge volumes with three columns on each page. I mean, huge. But, in fact, I have my, my World Christian Encyclopedia. Uh, I, there's so much research in it that I wondered how much there was, so I took it and put it on the bathroom scale. It weighs 20 pounds. 20 pounds of research. That's a lot of research. <laughs> so even the World Christian Encyclopedia, which is a three-volume set looking at global Christianity, wrote about the New Apostolic Reformation. How can it be the so-called New Apostolic Reformation? <laughs> and, um, but he divides all world Christianity into megablocks. And um, so there are over 2 billion Christians in the world. But here are the... You won't have time to write all these down. But just, just, I just want to give you the idea. It's nothing to take notes on. The Roman, you have the Roman Catholic. You have the Anglican or Episcopalian, we call it in America. You have the Orthodox, different branches of the Orthodox Church. You have the Protestant, and this is sometimes called Evangelical as well. And so this is where the Pentecostal, this is where the Assemblies of God would be in this one of David Barrett's mega blocks. And then you have the the marginal Christians, which I I tend to leave out because this is the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons and the, the that kind of cult, what we think is cultic. But he concludes it in the whole thing. And then you have the independent or post-week. 
he hasn't, Jack Hayford hasn't seen this yet. <laughs> he still calls it post-denominational, neo-apostolic, that's the word, at new apostolic. And um, he has that. Now, if you look at these, naturally, the Roman Catholic is the biggest mega block. Now, according to the PowerPoint slide that C. Peter Wagner put up as part of this lecture right at this point, uh, the claim of the new neo-apostolic post-denominational neo-charismatic third wave, which would be your new apostolic reformation, they are nearly 400,000 people globally. 400,000 people globally, and are as a block, they are larger than the Protestant evangelicals as a whole. Then you'll notice that this, um, uh, the, the, what I would call, I call no, or neo, that's new apostolic, uh, is the largest non-Catholic mega block in the world. And this is as of about 10 years ago. It's more now. It's, it's, the, uh, the, uh, the updated statistics are more than that now. And, and of all the mega blocks, including the Catholic, the new apostolic is the only mega block growing faster than the world population and faster than Islam. Mm, so growing faster than Islam, faster than the world's population. That's the late C. Peter Wagner. So my, my question is... If the New Apostolic Reformation, according to this independent third-party encyclopedia, is the largest non-Catholic megablock of Christians globally, how can somebody for real say that it's, well, the so-called New Apostolic Reformation? doesn't seem to make any sense. I mean, you have independent... Third-party encyclopedia is basically saying, oh, yeah, this thing is not only for real, it's the largest group of uh, non-Catholics globally, the so-called New Apostolic Reformation. Hmm, strange. Moving along. Yep, we're doing a sermon review, hour number one. Wow, wow. The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. Word Equal Opportunity Sermon Reviewing Service. Today's sermon comes to us via Bethel Church, Redding, California. Chris Valentin presiding. The name of the sermon is, What is an Apostle? Mm-hmm. For a church that doesn't know anything about the New Apostolic Reformation, despite the fact that uh, Bill Johnson was declared publicly to be an apostle and presided as one of the three apostles at Todd Bentley's Apostolic Alignment Ceremony at the Lakeland Revival ten years ago. It's fascinating that in May of 2017, yeah, less than a year ago, Chris Valentin did a sermon which he openly admitted is kind of doing the basics, the basic stuff that they do there at uh, Bethel. And uh, he decided to preach on uh, uh, apostles. Yeah. yeah. So-called New Apostolic Reformation. Now, so let me go ahead and back off on the music. Without any further ado, here is Chris Valentin. And what is an apostle? 
Okay, so um, we're going to talk about apostles tonight. And uh, for some of you that have been here uh, a long time, obviously this is Will. I don't know if, I don't, I don't plan to say anything new at all, but I feel like this is foundational. I don't plan to say anything new, unless it's just being funny. Um, but I, I, I really feel like it's important for us to have an idea of where we're going, what we're doing. And I think for a lot of people, the kind of, um, the kind of, uh, Bethel's motives are often a mystery to people. Obviously to the world, that's okay, but often to other people too. Like, what exactly are you doing? And um, I had an encounter some years ago. It was actually the first year I came here because we were living in this little apartment uh, at Shasta Lake Apartments, Kathy and I, when we first... So, note, he doesn't begin by going to a biblical text. Here's what Scripture says an apostle is. Here are the qualifications for an apostle and things like that. Nope, that's not where he goes. Uh, first place he goes is to an encounter he claims he had in the Shasta apartments. Moved here, and um, I used to. We had two bedrooms. I used to pray in this other bedroom. I was laying on the floor one morning, and um, and the Lord said, "We're moving from denominationalism to apostleships." Ask me what that means. <laughs> I'm learning to ask questions of the Lord. Mm-hmm. So it was the Lord who said, "I'm we're moving from denominationalism to apostleship. So this change in how the church is organized comes all the way from God himself, all the way from the top. Okay? And I said, what does that mean? And he said, in denominationalism, people gather when they agree and they divide when they disagree. Denominationalism, divided nations. How many know we're called to disciple nations, not divide nations? So the Lord said, in denominationalism, people gather when they agree, and they divide when they disagree. Um, how many know we're Protestants? That the word Protestant, it, at first, the word Protestant meant, was, was supposed to mean pro-Testament. As in, Martin Luther was pro-the Bible. But within about three months, it came to mean protester. And when Martin Luther left the Catholic Church, obviously I have no opinion about that. Some Catholic historians and Protestant historians would probably have some opinion. Now, I'm not going to uh, quibble with his weird wordplay. Let's just say that uh, what he's saying is, like, not even historically accurate. But let's just pretend it is so we don't lose the forest because of a tree. It's about how that should have went. But he didn't leave over social justice issues or over a conflict with, with, a, you know, with, a, with the Pope. It, it, in a personal conflict with the Pope, he actually left, you know, the 95 Theses he, he nailed to the, the door of the church. He left over doctrinal issues. In other words, um, Protestantism was born in, a, in, a, in a, um, a doctrinal disagreement. Yeah, Luther was excommunicated from the Catholic Church. Yeah, so I, I, I'm not sure what, why he thinks Luther left. He was kicked out. And so, so the Lord told me, in denominationalism, people gather when they agree. So the Lord told him this. So this is, this is a word from God, extra biblical revelation from Chris Vallotton. But the Lord told him this. So he's exegeting this direct revelation. And they divide when they disagree. But in apostleships, people rally around fathers, family, I mean, you know, in apostleships, they go, there's my dad, there's my mom, there's my sisters, there's my brothers. And the Lord said, I'm about to pour out revelation on this generation that's been held in the eons of ages. 
on the, uh, in the vaults of heaven for the eons of ages. But if I pour out revelation on the wineskin that people gather when they agree and they divide when they disagree, it will actually rip the wineskin because how many understand? All right. Now, by the way, wineskin, new wineskin talk is a major thing within the charismatic NAR latter rain circles. It basically kind of boils down to God, the Holy Spirit, who is apparently the wine, can't give us new wine uh, as long as we're working with an old wineskin. In this particular case, the wineskin is going to be how the church has been leadership organized in the in the past. So the new intoxicating work of the Spirit that the Spirit wants to pour out, the new wine, needs a new leadership structure to be able to handle it. That's how he's going to argue it. That the first, the nature of Revelation is that you have a new idea. And new ideas are not welcome in a wineskin where we need to agree. And by the way, if you gather in, uh, in denominationalism, and by the way, I'm not talking about denominations. I should have probably made that clear from the beginning. I'm not talking about denominations. I'm talking about denominationalism. It doesn't matter what it says over the door of your church. It just matters what it says over the door of your heart. And I would say the denominational spirit is just as alive in uh, apostolic networks in the 21st century as it is in any denomination. Now, notice what he just said. He just acknowledged the existence of apostolic networks and claimed that the spirit of denominationalism is also in those quote-unquote apostolic networks. And I would say the denominational spirit is just as alive in uh, apostolic networks in the 21st century as it is in any denominational church. So I'm not talking about what, you know, I'm a Baptist, so I'm I'm like, maybe you do, maybe you don't. Because it's not about titles, it's about heart. But in denominationalism, if we people gather when they agree and they divide when they disagree, and you're a shepherd in denominationalism... If I'm a leader of a denominationalism church and people gather when they agree and they divide when they disagree. Agree and disagree about what? Human opinions or what the scriptures say? Important distinction that he's not going to make. What do I have to make sure people don't do? I have to make sure they don't disagree. What's it take to have a disagreement? An opinion. What's it take to have an opinion? A thought. What do I have to make sure you don't do? I have to make sure you don't think. So I don't... Right. So if you attend a denominational church, and since we're all gathering to agree, apparently about my personal opinions, I've got to keep you from thinking. Yeah, this doesn't sound like any denominational church that I know that has confessions... Uh-huh, okay. preach to inspire you, I preach to convince you. How many understand that... It- so apparently if you, you know, it's all about now keeping you from thinking, and I'm not going to inspire you. It, of course, Chris Vallotton, he's totally avoided all of this stuff, and he he's doing all the right things because he receives direct revelation from God. In denominationalism, I don't preach to inspire you because if you start thinking, you'll have an opinion. And if you have an opinion, then guess what's going to happen? If your opinion is different than my opinion, then we split. The challenge is, 
Well, see how deep we're going to go here. The challenge is, is that in denominationalism, if you disagree with me, how many of you know that I typically brand that as disloyalty? Because we're together because we... So disloyalty now occurs when people disagree with human opinions in a church that's supposed to be preaching the word. Doctrinal differences generally revolve around how to understand particular biblical texts, not just mere human opinions. We agree. Therefore, you don't have permission to disagree with me. In other words, I tend to see how much you value me by how much you agree with me. (laughs) Which is a straw man. You sure the Lord told you this directly in an encounter at the Shasta Apartments? I'd like to suggest to you that you have permission to love anyone, no matter whether they agree with you or not. And that when you start to put a value system on people that you say, if you valued me, you would agree with me, how many know that you're going to manipulate people? Again, weird. I mean... I am a pastor in a denomination that has confessions. And it's not about people agreeing with me. In fact, our confessions are about what Scripture says and what it means. It's not about, well, dividing up over somebody's opinions about things. Because the outcome of you have to agree with me if you value me is I talk to you to convince you instead of actually to understand you. Which is weird because right now he's talking in order to convince people there at Bethel. Notice the double standard. I, uh, I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> See, think about this. In denominationalism, if I can't get you to agree with me, And I want you to stay in my congregation. What do I have to do? If I can't get you to agree with me, then I have to agree with you. Because the only reason we're together is because we agree. (laughs) What's that mean? How many know that morality, the idea, the, (laughs) the concepts around morality, what is sin? is shifting in denominationalism. It's shifting in churches that have denominational labels who have abandoned the idea that God's Word is authoritative, that it is infallible, and that it is the Word of God. So you look at a place like the ELCA, a denomination, the evangelical, quote-unquote, Lutheran Church of America. They're only Lutheran in name only. They deny, this, they deny the inerrancy and authority of the Word of God. As a result of it, they ordain women, impenitent homosexuals, and engage in all kinds of weird liberal social justice nonsense. But it's not about mere opinions. Uh, it's really about the fact that they've abandoned what Scripture is and what it says, and they deny it and subvert it, and they have supplanted it with their own man-made doctrines as a result. Um, 
So I think you kind of get the idea. So we are going to have to stick to our normal break schedule with this episode of Fighting for the Faith. And so we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Christian. Quick break when we come back. More of the sermon from uh, Chris Valentin. Uh, what is an apostle? Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Peter, James, John, and Paul are all dead. That means there are no living apostles in the church today. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally 
hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down. Click on the ad banner and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Oi, Captain! We got ourselves a heretic! (laughs) And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, we throw them in the boo box. No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. is to heretic, to R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that the new apostolic reformation is a real thing. It's not a so-called thing at all. Because it is a real thing. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our three friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew, the other says become a patron. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew, and your rank is based upon your monthly commitment. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's Mate at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month, and then Quartermaster, $99.95 a month. Joining our crew is a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to... Support us by becoming a patron on Patreon. Click on the Become a Patron button. If you'd like to make a one-time contribution, click on the Donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, let's get back to the sermon that we've been listening to from Chris Vallotton. What is an apostle? Preached at Bethel. We continue. So that now we're we're even ordaining homosexuals. I don't have a problem with 
loving, in fact, have a problem. We, how many know everybody deserves to be loved? No matter who you are. No matter what you've done. Everybody deserves to be able to come into the church and be loved. How many know that when Jesus found you, you were a sinner? Forgetting that is a real bummer. No, I think sometimes we don't have compassion on other people because we've been saved so long we forgot where we came from. It's pretty important that we love everybody. That we love everybody. But how many of you know that I love you? That doesn't mean, listen, love. Now I'm going to make a little bit of a note here. Everybody who is a Christian is still a sinner. Yeah, they, we are sinners saved by grace. John, the apostle John, in his epistle, first epistle, says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Writing to Christians, he says, but if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I'm not trying to quibble here, but Chris Valentin literally is just saying all kinds of weird stuff that Scripture doesn't agree with. Uh-huh. Love and agreement have nothing to do with each other. God so loved the world. He didn't agree with the world, but he loved the world. How many know Jesus hung out with sinners? I would say he didn't agree with their sin. But losing my virtues... so that I can embrace you is not the kingdom. You're like, well, Jesus loves sinners. He did, but he told the woman who was caught in adultery, I don't condemn you. Listen to this. Go your way and sin no more. In other words, telling her to not sin anymore wasn't condemnation. It was love. And people are like, well, everyone deserves mercy. But mercy, that's true. How many know? No, that's not. How do you deserve mercy? Mercy is given, by the way, grace is unmerited favor. If you've earned it and you deserve it, it's no longer grace. Yeah, I'm just pointing that out. Everybody deserves mercy. Everybody. No matter what you've done. You're a murderer. How many know you deserve mercy? But how many know mercy means... You did something wrong. Grace, <laughs> mercy means you didn't get what you deserve. Grace means you got what you didn't deserve. If you're speeding, if you're going 50 miles over the speed limit and the police officer pulls you over and doesn't give you a ticket, how many know that's mercy? Mercy means you deserved a ticket. You didn't get it. If the police officer gives you $1,000 because you sped, how many know that's called grace? You got what you didn't deserve. That's not original with me. Someone shared that. But my point is, is that when people say, well, the adulterer deserves mercy. Well, yes, but the only way he or she can... No, no adulterer deserves mercy. If they get mercy, which is what the cross is all about, not giving us what we deserve. What we deserved was put on to Christ, who bled and died as our substitute. See, this guy is just, when it comes to handling God's word and actually preaching what it says, he is all over the map and far from actually speaking biblical truth.
This is not my opinion. This is a demonstrable biblical fact. You can get it, Mercy, is to actually admit they were speeding. They did something wrong. <laughs> you can't have mercy applied to you if you don't actually admit you did something wrong. You don't need mercy if you didn't do anything wrong. I'm saying denominationalism doesn't just affect churches. It affects the way we see the world. And now the world has picked up the spirit of denominationalism. And they're saying, you're a bigot because you don't, you don't agree with me. I'm like, no, no, I love you. but I So apparently the world has learned uh, all of this from denominationalism and the spirit of denominationalism. Right. Uh-huh. I, have, I have a different view of what morality is. You know, Isaiah said in the last days, they'll say, bad is good and good is bad. And I don't, you know, personally, I don't have a problem with the world being confused over what's right and wrong. That's the world. But when the church doesn't just accept people because they should, but when the church validates lifestyles that are... Now I'm going to note... Where does the church learn what is right and wrong? Answer, Scripture. Where does the church learn what is sound doctrine as opposed to false doctrine? Answer, from those same Scriptures. So my question is, why would it apply to morals when it comes to obeying what God's Word says, but it doesn't apply to doctrine? Just putting it out there. That are clearly virtuous. That doesn't help the world. That confuses the world. And I'd like to suggest that the church becomes virtuous when we try to get everybody to agree with us and we feel and we lay a foundation that says, if you if you're you know, if you agree with me, if you don't if you love me, you'll agree with me. Now note, he's trying to get people to agree with him. Which is really weird. And I'm like, how many understand how much pressure there is when you redefine love as agreement? I'm talking about in our own relationships. In our relationship with our husbands and wives. How many know that when we define love as agreement? Or how about this one? Loyalty. How many know that if I agree with you, you don't know if I'm loyal to you. Because loyalty is actually tested when we don't agree. Again, note, he's not actually preaching from any biblical texts yet. So when I read, when I, <laughs> I'm saying denominationalism is actually reinterpreting the scriptures. Uh, that's weird coming from a fellow who's reinterpreted the scriptures. And he'll be reinterpreting them in the sermon, which is fascinating. And at the same time, he has not rightly defined what a denomination is or why they exist. He's created a straw man. Denominationalism is saying, well, unity, I mean, if, we're, if we all agree, then we're in unity. But how many know it's called the unity of the spirit, not the unity of the doctrine? All right, got to do a little biblical work here. Titus chapter 1, the Apostle Paul writing to Pastor Timothy, talking about the qualifications for somebody to be a pastor. He, the pastor, must hold firm 
to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate. They are empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Well, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, so that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the command of people who turn away from the truth. Mm -hmm. Then you think of like Romans chapter 16, Romans chapter 16, where we have a clear word from the Apostle Paul, where he says in verse 17, I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions, create obstacles that are contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Mm -hmm. So those are two clear passages that just contradicted what Chris Vallotton said in this sermon, which is about uh, what an apostle is. I'm saying we're redefining terms to get people... To agree with us, we're using, we're twisting the scripture to say, if you're a part of our congregation, then I'm right. And by the way, you have a right to my opinion, but to no other. And we redefine loyalty, unity as loyalty. And I'm like, no, it's the unity of the spirit. And loyalty is actually means I'm with you no matter what happens. I'm with you if I don't agree with you. I'm with you in hard times. I'm with you. I am Connected to you. So I believe that we're going through this dramatic shift. And there are lots of tests to this new wineskin. So um, in uh, Mark chapter 2, this is uh, repeated actually in four of the Gospels. Jesus said, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise the wine will burst the skins and the wine will be lost. And the skins as well. Uh, the question is, what is a new wineskin? First of all, let's talk about the wine. Jesus said no. All right, we're going to take a look at the context. Three rules for sound biblical exegesis are context, context, context. It's important for you to know that the wineskin argument is a standard twisting of Scripture in the charismatic movement. And the idea is, is that they take Jesus' metaphor here and basically say, there's a new thing that God wants to do, a new wine that God wants to bring to the church, but the old way of doing things has got to go. That's the old wineskin. And uh, when I was in the uh, Lateran movement, this was one of the arguments used by the woman who was the prophetess at the, the church that I attended. Mm -hmm. But uh, Mark chapter 2, let's pay attention to what's going on here. Mark chapter 2, verse 18. Now, John's disciples... And the Pharisees, they were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? By the way, that begins the real understanding of the wineskin talk. In other words, he's saying it's inappropriate in the same way that it's inappropriate for the wedding guests to fast 
while the bridegroom is with him. You don't fast when the bridegroom is with you at the wedding. You feast, right? That's the idea. So as long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. That's unheard of. Nobody does that because that would be inappropriate. That's kind of foolish, right? If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and the wor- and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. The wine will be- is destroyed and so are the skins. But the new wine is for fresh wineskins. By the way, the fresh thing that is, you know, if you really want to take the wineskin and make the talk about the fresh thing, it's the new covenant, which is in Christ. So the point of the whole of the wineskin metaphor, the unshrunk cloth metaphor, and the wedding guests is that this is an answer to the question, why don't your disciples fast? Answer, it's totally inappropriate and it would be foolishly wrong for them to do so. That's the point that Jesus is making in this text. Charismatic movement then takes this and literally turns it into something else, and they allegorize it in order to say there's a new wine that God wants to pour out, but we got to get rid of the old wineskin. We continue. Owen puts new wine in old wineskins. What would the wine be? I'd like to suggest that the wine is, is a metaphor for the Holy Spirit's outpouring that intoxicate. You know, if you... Why? There's nothing in the text that talks about the, the new wine being an intoxicating Holy Spirit. That's bad pneumatology to begin with, but there's nothing in the immediate context there in Mark 2 that would identify the wine as... Well, the Holy Spirit, the intoxicating Holy Spirit. You drink too much wine, then you actually are under the influence of the wine. <laughs> we're going to get to Acts 2 in a minute. But when the Holy Spirit was poured out, people thought they were drunk with wine, but Peter said, no, they're drunk with the Spirit. <laughs> I'd suggest that... Yeah, Acts 2 is not a cross-reference to Mark 2. What he just did there was pulling a text that has nothing to do with actually Jesus, what what he was saying and what he meant. Wine is the intoxicating presence of the Holy Spirit. How many would like to have more? The intoxicating presence of the Holy Spirit. You you see, in Acts chapter 2, Peter denied being intoxicated. So he's twisted Acts chapter 2 and now Mark 2. Holy Spirit. And uh, Bill's point is, you, you know, he gives the Spirit without measure. So, how many understand that you can have as much Holy Spirit as you want? So, what is the new wine? In, in, Mark, chapter, uh, in, in Mark chapter 2, verse 18, Jesus... This is really interesting because oftentimes uh, the Gospels, the four Gospels, will repeat a same story, but the pretext and the posttext will be different. It's interesting that in every single case, the pretext, in other words, what Jesus said before he said, no one puts new wine in old wineskins, 
in every single case, it's the same. And here's the pretext. John's disciple and the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were fasting. And they came and said to him, why do, your, why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said, while the bridegroom is with him, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the old from the, the new from the old, and a worse tear results. No one puts new wine in, in old wineskins. And then it goes on to say that. In other words, the pretext in every single case where Jesus talks about wineskins in the Gospels is why do your Pharisees, why do the Pharisees and John's disciples fast and your disciples do not fast? Now note, John the Baptist's disciples fasting, Pharisees fasting. Important to note, Pharisees are not, they are not operating in a biblical office. You read all of the New Te- Old Testament, all, read all of the Old Testament, you will see no Pharisees. They do not represent a biblical leadership structure in Israel at the time. Jesus identifies them as heretics, and in John chapter 10, describes them as, well, people who've hopped the fence. They have, uh, they've come in without any authority to do so. They are shepherds who feed really only themselves. I'd like to suggest that the old wineskins were the, was, was leadership. The Pharisees and John represented leaders. Uh, yeah, John's not a heretic. He is literally the, one of the last of the prophets, and he's the first evangelist. The Pharisees are heretics. They don't operate in a biblical office. So he's totally twisting Mark chapter 2 in order to fit this claim that he received a revelation from God in this uh, ecstatic moment, encounter that he had, where uh, God was saying, I'm getting rid of denominationalism and bringing in the apostles. And Jesus, how many know Jesus is the new wineskin? In, um, in Acts chapter 1, we have all the disciples together. Jesus has, you know... Just- Acts chapter 1 is not a cross-reference to Mark 2. Just spoke to them. He rose from the dead. He spoke to them. He told them to wait for what the Father had promised. And then in verse 14, it says, While they were with one mind, continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers, at this time, Peter stood up in the midst of them and said, of a gathering of about 120 persons, and said, Brethren, the Scriptures had to be fulfilled with, the, with which the Holy Spirit foretold from the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who were arrested, who arrested Jesus. Verse 23, they put forward two men, Joseph called Barbaeus, who's also called Gustus, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, know the hearts of men. Show us which one of these shall occupy the ministry of apostleship, from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew straws and lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven. Now, if you were following along in your Bible, then you realized that he skipped some stuff. Yes, he did. He skipped some things. The things he skipped were the requirements, the qualifications for being an apostle. So let me read from Acts chapter 1, 
starting in verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of the persons was in all about 120. He said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide for those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted with his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akadama, that is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp be desolate and, and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. Verse 21. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Notice the qualifications for an apostle. Uh Uh-huh. Who was also... uh, so. And they put forward Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen. An apostle is somebody who sent. This is an apostle sent by Christ. There were only two men who met the qualifications for being an apostle. Having accompanied the disciples from the time of Jesus' baptism until his ascension, who needed to be an eyewitness of the resurrection. Mm -hmm. And uh, you're going to note that the Apostle Paul doesn't fit this qualification, yet he was chosen and sent by Christ, and this is why Paul says he was an apostle abnormally born. Now, if you read your Bible, you will note that there are a few other men who are also called apostles who are not part of the Twelve. Barabbas, uh, not Barabbas, but um, Barnabas comes to mind. And here's the idea. The question is, who sent them? The Apostle Paul says he's an apostle of Jesus Christ, sent by Christ. Barnabas is an apostle sent by the church. Mm -hmm. He's an emissary of the church. Different thing altogether. And so, yeah, you're going to note here that the office of apostle, as laid out in Scripture, is limited to these men, to these men and these men only. And they were the ones chosen by Christ. They are part of the foundation of the church and which the church is built. You don't relay a foundation. You get the idea. But um, I find it fascinating that uh, Chris Vallotton ignored the um, qualifications for being an apostle because, after all, he claims that he had an encounter where the Lord told him he was going to be restoring apostles. In other words... We always talk about that they were together in one mind and one heart and they prayed. But not very many people talk about what the prayer meeting resulted in. The prayer meeting resulted in Peter having a prophetic word or maybe a revelation that they needed to take Judas's office and replace Judas with somebody else. I like this because they choose two men. And they say, Lord, show us which one of these men shall take the place of Judas. And they actually choose straws. Now, I don't know how important this seems to you, but do you realize that the New Jerusalem, I'm going to read it to you in a minute, the foundation, the 12 foundation stones of the New Jerusalem have the names of the apostles on them forever? 
and they chose the 12th apostle through the drawing of straws? <laughs> I don't know. It's like, let's throw dice for it. Yeah, snake eyes. It's Matthias. But my point is this, is that after they replace Judas with Matthias, the Holy Spirit falls. The very next verse, Acts chapter 2, verse 1, you'll remember there was no verse numbers in the Bible. This is the error, yeah, this is a logical fallacy known as post hoc ergo prompter hoc, or like my wife likes to call it, post hoc ergo poppycock. Uh, the idea that after this, therefore, because of this. So what Chris Valentin is doing is twisting God's word, and we've noted all along, every text he's touched, he's twisted, and now he's trying to posit the idea that the reason the Holy Spirit finally fell is because the right leadership was in place, and now the Holy Spirit's going to come without measure again once apostolic leadership is restored. This is duplicitous. When it was written, at least not in the New Testament, after... Matthias, I'm sorry, after Matthias replaced Judas, then the Holy Spirit fell. Now, is it possible that the Holy Spirit's intoxicating presence was waiting for the complete government of God? Because in Revelation chapter 21, 10, it says, He carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed... Is it possible? He didn't make a statement, he asked a question. But the question is designed to create, you know, perception that, oh, this is the reason it happened. Is it possible? No, there's no text that says that's the reason. Jesus, remember, promised to send the Holy Spirit before, long before they chose Matthias to replace Judas. Me, the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, having the glory of God, her brilliance, it was like a very costly stone, a stone of clear, crystal clear jasper. And it had a high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates were 12 angels, and, the names, and names were written on them, which were the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. This is interesting. Did you notice that the 12, the 12 uh, gates had 12 names, and it was the 12 names of the 12 tribes of Israel? When... Um, when, uh, when Israel, I don't know if this is interesting to you, but when Joshua crossed the Jordan River, do you remember they set up stones? How many stones did they set up? No, they didn't. They set up 24 stones. They set up 12 stones in the river, and they set up 12 stones at Gilgal. Gilgal is where they circumcised the men before they could come in to the promised land. Isn't it interesting that the New Jerusalem has 12 names of the tribes on the gates, but the foundation has 12 names of the apostles. Mm, yeah, kind of like how the apostle Paul in Ephesians 2 says the church is built on the foundation, foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. Paul saying that he laid no other foundation than Christ himself. I think you get the idea. All right, we're going to take our second break, and we will continue uh, with the sermon on the other side of the break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous edition of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook. 
Facebook.com forward slash Pyre Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Pyre Christian. When we come back, the balance of this sermon by Chris Vallotton. Very fascinating. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Gibberish is not one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Hey everyone, it's Rex here to tell you about a product that I use on a daily basis. It's Coffee by Gillespie. It's delicious. It's got the caffeine you need to be a functioning member of society, and it's, it's coffee. There's all sorts of different blends to choose from that are themed alongside the church calendar. So not only does it taste insanely good, but it's also liturgical. Somehow. All you have to do is order it online at gillespie.coffee, and it'll arrive at your door in a convenient, resealable bag filled with either whole bean or pre-ground coffee. I personally like mine as whole bean because it goes so well with milk. Yeah. Now that's what I call a balanced breakfast. So head on over to gillespie.coffee and get some. That's G-I-L-L-E-S-P-I-E dot coffee. Rex out! Oi, Captain! We got ourselves a heretic! (laughs) (laughs) And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, we throw them in the boo box. No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. To err is to heretic. To R is to pirate. 
Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today. Two, we're right in the thick of it. Yeah, we're not going to be starting the sermon. We're going to try to see if we can endeavor to finish this thing up. But very fascinating. All right, so let's head back to Bethel Church, Redding, California, as we listen to Chris Valentin, uh explain to us uh, what an apostle is. And he's been twisting Scripture and claiming direct revelation all along the way. But fascinating, though, uh, because it's apparently the so-called New Apostolic Reformation, and Bethel knows nothing about it, clearly. But <clears throat> we continue. Listen, we're going to finish reading it. And it says, um, verse 13, And there were three gates on the east, da, da, da. verse 14, And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Isn't that interesting that in the New Jerusalem, like in the city, there are actually twelve foundation stones with the names of humans on them. That's actually holding up the presence of God. The throne of God is sitting on 12 foundation stones that are the names of the apostles. Is it possible that a new wineskin has something to do with leadership and government? That God doesn't... No, because you're twisting God's word and bringing cross-references that don't have anything to do with the immediate context or what Jesus meant when he was talking about the new wineskins. You're making stuff up. He doesn't want his spirit poured out on all wineskins, but neither does he want his spirit poured out on no wineskins. In other words, wineskins give, if you will, um, perimeters to the wine so that we have a river and not a flood. Practically, when the Holy Spirit falls on a congregation, we're learning Like, do we have a role in that, or should we just sit down and let Holy Spirit do whatever? I propose that we co-labor with Holy Spirit. I I propose it shouldn't be a free-for-all. I propose that the Holy Spirit's intoxicating presence is to be shepherded among the flock and not left alone. What is that? That's leadership. Anyway. So the Lord, so we're moving from denominationalism, where we gather around truth. And by the way, how many know? And the reason he claims we're doing this is because he had an encounter with the Lord at the Shasta Apartments. I'm not making that up. But truth's important. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. We're not saying truth isn't important. We're saying relationship is the foundation. Covenant relationships are the foundation of the church. So you're going to note that these covenant relationships trump doctrine. And somebody who is making a 
doctrinal case from Scripture is seen as somebody who has a denominational spirit and who is not in tune with love and not in tune with the new thing that the new wineskin that the Holy Spirit and Christ are about. How many know the church was born in a covenant? You take communion. What are you reminded of? The covenant you made with Jesus. The, the church was born in a covenant, not in a conference. <laughs> yeah, again, this is pseudo-profundity. This is not anything biblical. Okay, thank you, Chris, for that. Malachi chapter 4, probably the most famous verse, well, one of the most famous verses in the whole, entire Old Testament. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and what? Terrible day of the Lord. And he'll restore the hearts of fathers to children and hearts of children to fathers that I, may, that I will not come and smite the land with the curse. So that I might not come and smite the land with the curse. What's the point here? How many understand that the prophetic, that the foundation of the church is apostles and prophets? What are, what are prophets? What's the prophetic role or one of the major prophetic roles in the New Testament? That Elijah would come, and what's he going to do? He's going to restore hearts to fathers to sons and sons to, fa- sons to fathers. How many understand? How many times have you built a house where you've relayed the foundation? He keeps acknowledging that apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church. They are. Uh-huh. And you build on that foundation. You don't keep relaying it. You don't need new apostles today. That Second Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man be in Christ, he's a... New creation. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. What's the next verse? And God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. What's the next verse? And we have been given the ministry of reconciliation, as if God was begging through us to be reconciled to God. My point is this. In the Old Testament, what did Elijah do? What what was Elijah's role in the Old Testament as a prophet? He called down fire. He killed false prophets. He stopped the rain. How many understand that he was kind of destructive more than constructive? But when you take the Old Testament prophet Elijah and you bring him into the new covenant, what does he do? Does he call down fire? Does he call down judgment? No, he actually reconciles families. How does he do it? By valuing, bringing value, bringing fathers and sons, mothers and daughters back to connection. I'd like to suggest that we're in the We're in the age, we're in the apostolic age. We're in the apostolic age, and the first thing God wants to do in the apostolic age is restore the family. This family and families. So he's claiming we're in an apostolic age. We're in the apostolic age, said Chris Valentin several times. Let me read for you a quote from none other than C. Peter Wagner. From his book titled Apostles Today. See, Peter Wagner wrote, quote, Are there apostles in our churches today? Most Christians would affirm they believe in apostles because Jesus led a group of 12 of them. However, apostles are generally seen as figures of a bygone age, like Vikings, Roman, Legion, Spanish conquistadors, or pioneers in covered wagons. They made their contributions to history, but the world has moved on. One reason why this kind of thinking is so prevalent is that this is what most of our church leaders were taught in seminary and Bible school. 
I know, I was one of them, said C. Peter Wagner. The notion that there would be contemporary apostles never came up in the seminaries I attended, not even as a suggestion. We were taught that the original twelve apostles had a singular of one of a kind mission that was completed by the time of their deaths, and that was that the end of the brief life of the apostles on earth. Consequently, I graduated assuming that apostles did not continue long after the first hundred years or so of the church. Not so. We are now living in the midst of one of the most epical changes in the structure of the church that has ever been recorded. I like to call it the second apostolic age. The second apostolic age is a phenomenon of the 21st century, my studies indicate that it began around the year 2001. Yeah. So, um, by the way, C. Peter Wagner also wrote, this is a quote from his book, um, the traditional Protestant church has understood apostles and prophets uh, to be offices relegated to the first apostolic age but not continuing in churches throughout history. Based on that understanding that there are no longer apostles and prophets in our churches, then teachers who are next in line, according to 1 Corinthians 12, 28, would be the first in order. Obviously, this is not so, says C. Peter Wagner. Protestant denominationalism over the past 500 years has been, for the most part, governed by teachers and administrators, rather than by apostles and prophets. That means that denominational executives are actually administrators, good, godly, and wise ones, but administrators nonetheless. Most pastors of local churches are assumed to be teachers, at least ever since the sermon became the central point of the weekly congregational gathering, with the sermon being their primary vehicle for teaching their people. It is fascinating that even though we have had church government backward over the past two centuries, according to 1 Corinthians 12, we have evangelized so much of the world. Think of what will happen now that the church government is getting in proper order. Administrators and teachers are essential for good church health and will function much better once the apostles and the prophets are in place. Yeah, I say that because here, C. Peter Wagner makes it very clear that he truly believed and taught that God was restoring the office of apostle and doing away with, in his own words, denominationalism. Isn't it fascinating that uh, Chris Vallotton of Bethel Church, who also happens to be under the apostle Bill Johnson, is talking the same exact way. I'd, and I, Do you know that we are in the fatherless generation? We are in the most fatherless generation in the history of the world. Now let me finish that did not lose fathers through war. There have been more fatherless generations percentage-wise in the First and Second World War and some other times in history. But we're in the fatherless generation that did not lose fathers due to war. And I'd propose that Elijah's coming. That Elijah's here. That the spirit of Elijah is on the church and part of that is reconciling the world to itself. That God is in the reconciling business, and he's not reconciling the world. Actually, Christ is the one who's reconciled us to the Father. ...world to an organization. He's reconciling the world to a family. How many know when God wanted to touch the world, he sent a son? 
This is just pure propaganda. This is not biblical exegesis. He didn't send a boss. He sent a son. And when the son taught us how to relate to God, he said, pray this way, our father. Not my father. I mean, I'm not called to, to talk to God as if I'm the only one I'm responsible for. My father who's in heaven. No, our father. Two things. One, father. We're part of a, we got saved into a cosmic family. And it's not all about me. And it's not all about you. It's about us. It's about all you all. I'm saying I'm supposed to relate to God as if I'm a part of something bigger than me. I'm not supposed to be praying for just me. Of course you can pray for yourself. My, my point isn't that you can't pray for yourself or that God doesn't care about the individual. You understand that. In the context, I'm saying God wants us to think our. So when I'm praying for our daily bread and our, our trespasses, I'm not thinking me. I'm thinking all of us. Because I was born to be interdependent, not independent. Now, in the, in the body of Christ, it's interesting, Romans 12 says something powerful. <laughs> it's coming to me. It's just sometimes as you get older, it has to seep up. It's, got, it's still got the old wiring, you know? It's, I got dial-up. <laughs> Romans, says, Romans 12 says that we are individually members of one another. See, I don't lose my individuality when I become part of you. Uh, See, unity is not conformity. It's a celebration of diversity. I get to bring me, the real me, to you. And the real me with you makes, it's part of our family. I don't have to be you to be with you. I get to be me to be with you. (laughs) Okay, think about this. Remember when they built the Tower of Babel? It says they exchanged brick for stones and tar for mortar. You're like, where, where are you going? How many of you know that you're living stones? See, a stone... Yeah, total twisting here of the story of the Tower of Babel from the book of Genesis. This is just really hard to plow through. ...has a shape... Each stone is shaped specifically through its course in the river in it, or its course in, you know, maybe the stone wasn't in the river. Maybe it was in the side of a mountain. The point is, is that that stone's journey caused it to be a certain shape. So when I'm a stone, if you, have you ever, anyone ever done any stone work? I've done quite a bit of stone work in walls. You, you look for a stone that fits in that place. But how many know, a lot easier to lay brick. Because they're all the same. That's denominationalism. See, denominationalism, God didn't like it too well. God wants unity, but not the Tower of Babel. Where they, where they exchange stones, no, bricks for stones. See, God doesn't want the church to be stones. I mean, sorry, bricks. He doesn't want, like, we're all the same. Listen, you want to be part of us? Believe this, do this, do this. Okay, well, you don't believe that? Okay, we want you to stay. We'll just change what we believe. If that's true, why does Scripture so explicitly tell us 
to rebuke those who teach false doctrine and to mark and to avoid them. Hmm. Yeah, it's just really weird because his twisting of the story of the Tower of Babel from Genesis is contradicted by clear texts in the New Testament. Bricks. Are you following me? The church is not living bricks. It's living stones. You get to be you. And listen, if you don't find your place in the body. Let me say it differently. There's a place in the wall only you fit. Only you fit. If you try to imitate somebody else, how many know you're not going to fit in the wall? (laughs) Because the wall has a place just for you. So if you spend your life being someone else, you're like, I never fit. You never fit because the place in the wall was for the original. Not for the copy of Eric or Bill or Chris or anybody else you might admire here. You're not supposed to be Chris. You're supposed to be you. When you get to heaven, God's not going to say, why were you not Moses? Why were you not David? He's going to say, why were you not John? Why were you not Mary? Do you get the idea? I'm saying, God is not looking for conformity. He actually made flowers. Years ago, I saw these flowers growing up in my... Yeah, that's weird because Scripture makes it very clear that that um, yeah, God is actually looking for doctrinal conformity. Otherwise, the command to rebuke those who teach false doctrine and to mark and avoid those who teach false doctrine would not be there. This man is a false prophet claiming to receive direct revelation from God. And I hate to say it, he's also a false apostle. My bedroom window... And I was, it was Saturday morning. I stayed in bed late. And I was just kind of just thinking and praying and writing my journal. And I said, God, why did you make flowers? And I'm thinking, I'm going to get this revelation. Like about the ecosystems of the earth. You know, because like Washington Carver asked God about peanuts. I'm like, this is going to be good. Why did you make flowers? He goes, because I think they're pretty. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Yeah, this uh, every biblical text he twists, claiming direct revelation, and in, uh, is just filled with nonsense and pseudo profundity, while also establishing this idea that God's getting rid of denominations because, hey, he's replacing that all with the apostolic. And yet, Michael Brown says the so-called new apostolic reformation. Weird. No, let's be real. There was probably other reasons why God made flowers. But the reason he gave me is because he thinks they're pretty. You can't eat them. Some people smoke them, but you're not supposed to. I mean, God didn't say, I I made the flowers, she would smoke them. No, he said, because they're beautiful. And let's face it, if if flowers have another purpose, he could have made them all one color. All white, all yellow. But he made them all different sizes and shapes. My point is, God loves art. God loves creativity. He's the master creator. He loves creativity. He's, he loves you being different. I'm saying denominationalism kills creativity. 
We're living, we're all living bricks. We're all the same. No, it's actually... Yeah, and this isn't based on a biblical argument at all. And I would argue that uh, it's fascinating. Some of the best music, best hymns have come from denominational churches who clearly taught sound biblical doctrine and affirmed the authority and inerrancy of Scripture and boldly proclaimed what the Scriptures reveal. Hmm. Weird. In diversity that we find the beauty of God. Now, maybe back to my original point, or one of the points I made, I think. How many know that doesn't mean there's not absolutes? It doesn't mean there, 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 there aren't morals and standards. And Well, I believe Jesus is Lord. Well, I don't. Oh, well, it's okay. By the way, just a reminder, this is the guy who defended Christ alignment and their Christian fortune-telling cards. I remember one time we were in Weaverville, and we used to have an open mic. It was a smaller church, and we often would have an open mic where people could come to the front and share a prophetic word. But there, there was a gatekeeper. Usually it was me or one of the, one of the team, and Bill would be up on stage, and, and somebody would come up, and, and Bill would, you know, like I would see if what they had to say was not just good, but wasn't relevant for where we were going in the morning. You know, most mostly it was like, is it in track with where we're going with the service? This one lady comes up. We had never seen her before. And um, <laughs> she says, I, I have something I feel like God's put in my heart. I said, okay, well, what is it? And she shared something. I don't remember what it was. So Bill's kind of looking down. The worship's kind of going. And, and so I'm like, okay, give her the mic. So Bill gives her the mic and she said, I just want to say I really love it here, and I believe that my God should get together with your God. And Bill looks down. I said, that is not what she said she was going to say. When I'm talking about denominationalism and, and not being and apostleships, and I'm saying that in apostleships that we don't have to agree... Listen, I'm not talking about relative truth. I'm not talking about, like, you know... You're talking about a unity that ha- that where doctrine has no place at all. It's very fascinating. This is just like Warnock's book from the latter reign. Um, I mean, seriously, this is the exact same theology I heard when I was in the latter reign. It's all about unity, and doctrine is a thing of mind, and you got to turn the mind off, and you just got to unite. Uh-huh. So this is really weird. This is so latter rain, it's not even funny. There is an absolute, so there's no morality, or there's whatever. I'm simply saying that we can have a different revelation about the non-essentials and hang out together and be a body. And... Furthermore, we can reach out to people in the world who totally don't believe anything we believe, and we can love them just as much as we love the person who agrees with us. And what I'm getting at here is that denominationalism doesn't just affect people, our people. It doesn't just affect the way believers interact. It, always, it also affects the way we interact with the world. And I'd like to suggest, I know this can be taken wrong, so just remember who's saying it. No, don't even remember that. That could be worse. 
<laughs> Bill's like, no, that'll make it worse. <laughs> Evangelism sometimes uses the tools of manipulation to actually lead people to Christ. And I, I think, how many know the ultimate answer for the world is everybody needs to love Jesus and be born again. That being said, when I should have permission to love whomever without the pressure of converting them. I don't know if I fully agree with that, but I mostly do. I'm saying that the world, most of the world, especially the Western world, views us as car salesmen, and they're on a parking lot, and we interact with them, and we're like, oh, we love your shirt. Yes, we love, oh, yes, we'd love to be a part of the city. Oh, yes, we love, I mean, you know why most of the people in the city who don't know God don't want us involved? Because they get that we manipulate them to lead them to Christ. Quote, lead them to Christ. I mean, I'm under pressure to pray the prayer. So some of you hang out with somebody who's something different than you, a homosexual or someone living together or, or some. Do you feel like you're actually having the question answered, what is an apostle? Yeah, you're going to note that most of the sermon is dedicated to tearing down sound biblical doctrine and denominations that hang on and hold to it. Something else, and they're, they're like, have you, have you, did you pray the prayer with them? No, I just love them. Oh, well, and I have to try to convince in denominationalism, if I'm hanging out with people who think differently, if I'm hanging out with unbelievers, I only have permission to do that if I'm on a mission to get them to think like us. And I'm saying, I don't think that's the Lord. I just have a hard time Jesus going to a wedding. People are drinking pretty much. I mean, they drank so much, they drank all the wine that people anticipated they'd drink. And like, dang, we're out of wine. And Mary's like, oh, Jesus will fix that. And Jesus makes wine. And they're like, wow, most people save the good wine. They serve first. And then when people are drunk... I mean, you know, when you're drunk, you just drink gallo. You've got four bucks a gallon. You don't care what you drink. I wouldn't know because I've never drank. <laughs> but, but my point is, is that you don't waste great wine on people who are drunk. But Jesus did. Now you're like, well, he was there so he could. Okay, all of you drunk people, I made the wine. Raise your hand if you'd like to receive me. I made that wine so you would receive me. I understand, ultimately, he wants everyone to receive him. But there's just something broken about that. But I'm saying, like, in denominationalism, there is pressure. There is pressure to get people to agree with us. I like people raising their hands to get saved. That's how I got saved. Led some folks in salvation a week ago. Saw a whole bunch of people get saved at the women's conference. Raising their hands, coming forward, praying, getting baptized. Everybody good? But raising your hands and praying a prayer is not in the Bible. 
I'm good with it. It's just extra biblical. Not anti-biblical, it's extra biblical. Is it possible that we have people repeat a prayer sometimes because we need people to agree with us? Here, pray. How do I get saved? You agree with this prayer. You believe Jesus Christ died on the cross. Listen, I believe those things. I'm simply saying, like, in the, in, in the book of Acts, they just got baptized. <laughs> you want to follow Jesus? Yeah. Okay. Well, get baptized. Am I supposed to read the Bible? There is no Bible. <laughs> Couldn't read it if there was one. Yeah, actually there was. The Old Testament was written, and the apostles, when they went into the synagogues, used the Old Testament. Yeah, weird. I'm saying Bible's important. I mean, Holy Spirit's pretty important in the, in the lives of believers. Um, I don't think that came out right, but we'll just leave it there. The Lord said to me that denominationalism is like the concubines of old. So there you go. I mean, that's quite the statement. Uh, denominationalism is like the concubines of old. Concubines. So if you attend a denominational church, you're a concubine Christian. You're not really part of the. You're not part part of the bride of Christ. And the Lord said to me, "You know the difference between a concubine and a wife? Remember, kings would have like they would have like 400 concubines and like 10 wives or 20 wives or 30 wives." And the Lord said, "You know the difference between a concubine and a wife of a king? No." Well, the concubines didn't carry the king's name, and none of their children had an inheritance. That's denominationalism. Yeah, he claims that's a direct revelation from the Lord. So it's got to be true, right? So am I blaspheming the Holy Spirit by saying, nope, God didn't say that to you. The Lord was not the one who spoke that. How many of you know, in the kingdom you belong? There's no such thing as a nameless, faceless person in the kingdom because God knows your name, you have a face, and he knows how many hairs are on your head. I'm saying you're not just a mass of people. You're not living bricks. You're living stones. You are individual. You're important to God both as an individual and as part of the bigger family. But my point is this. In the Old Testament, do you notice that God corrected kings for adultery? but he never corrected him for concubines? In the beginning, in Genesis 1, and Jesus repeats this in the Gospels, in Genesis 1, and Genesis 2, I'm sorry, how many know that God decreed that a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, the connotation is one, and become one flesh. And in in, uh, Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says that that, Husband leaving his wife and cling, uh, her, his, her, his father and mother and clinging to his wife and then becoming one is actually, is actually a picture of Christ and the church. Paul says, this mystery is great, but I'm speaking to Christ and the church. What I'm getting at is one man, one woman connecting together, being married. That was the original plan. But how many know the kings had many wives and many concubines? And they got corrected for committing adultery outside of those kind of relationships, but they didn't get corrected for having multiple wives and having multiple concubines. I'm saying God allowed something that wasn't his idea. And I'm saying denominationalism, God allowed, but it wasn't his idea. Uh-huh. 
Again, I would note that the reason why denominations exist is for doctrinal differences. Now, clearly, some of the denominations, their doctrine is not biblical. But others, their their doctrine is biblical. Yeah, so this is so repugnant. And he's claiming that this uh, concubine metaphor comes directly from God himself. His idea was always covenant. Uh-huh, yeah. So, you know, again, note the, the direct revelation regarding the concubine metaphor. Where are we going? 11 minutes. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We're going to change gears. Apostles. What are apostles? Probably uh, one of the most asked questions um, during question and answer time with our students are like, hey, what's an apostle? Well, first of all... Um, so finally he's going to get to it after tearing down denominations. Um, the word apostle was... Um, sometimes people ask, well, why are there no apostles in the Old Testament? Well, one of the reasons why the, there's no apostles in the Old Testament is because the word was yet to be invented. So the, the word wasn't invented till about 200 years before Christ. It was actually invented. The concept was actually invented by the Greeks. And of course it meant sent. It meant sent or sent one. But the connotation wasn't like, I send you out. It, the connotation was, I send you to a place to reproduce in the place I sent you to what I sent you from. So the place I send you to looks like the place I sent you from. So, Which Greek lexicon has that as the definition for apostolos? I would like to see that Greek lexicon. So the word doesn't just mean you go out. The word means you go out to culturize. Are you with me? Again, which Greek lexicon has that as the definition for apostolos? Apostolos, the apostoloi, are emissaries. Mm -hmm. They represent the person who sent them. So the Romans, when Jesus walked the earth, of course, the Romans were leading. They were, they were ruling Rome, where the, uh, ruling Israel, where the Jews lived. And so, um, and so the Romans were conquering. They were very much like Hitler. They, they had this vision to conquer the, the, the entire known world. And you know the adage, when you're in Rome, you do... As the Romans do. So the Romans were going out and conquering. But as they were conquering, they would come back to the cities they conquered. And the cities were back to their old ways. And the Romans said, why are we conquering? But we're not culturizing. So the Romans picked up the Greek idea. And they said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to send our, we're going to, we're going to commission some of our commanders, some of our, our generals. We're going to commission them as apostles. And we're going to send them out, of course, with the military to conquer. But with the military is going to go politicians and teachers and philosophers and, and artists. And you get the idea. So that we're going to conquer and then we're going to culturize. We're going to conquer and culturize. So that was the, the Romans did not think up that idea. But they did actually use that idea as um, they, they actually put an, an, you know, an activity to that idea. So Jesus in the days of, of Christ when he walked the earth... You'll, you'll, you'll remember that the, the Jews were under Roman rule. So uh, the word apostle was a very secular word. Like It meant something different, but kind of like our word CEO. So when Jesus, when he promotes his learners, disciples, to leaders, it's interesting what he called them. 
He could have called them priests. You'll remember there's a whole Levitical priestly order. Jesus still lived in the Old Testament. could have called them priests. He could have called them prophets. There was the whole company of prophets in the book of Samuel, First and Second Samuel. He, he, he could have called them patriarchs. There was 12 patriarchs and there was 12 disciples. But instead, he takes the secular word of the people who are literally ruling them. And he said, you, you know those guys who are always trying to get us to act like Romans? You are my apostles. And then he gives them an apostolic prayer. What's the prayer? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Where are you seated? Heavenly places. What's your job? Your job is to bring earth to heaven. Heaven, heaven to earth. No, that's a total twisting of the Lord's Prayer. It is not our job to bring heaven to earth. We pray that, well, as it is in heaven, that it will be done here. That's what we pray. And notice it's in a petition. But the job of the church is to make disciples of all nations, baptizing, and listen to these words, teaching all that Christ has commanded, his doctrines, his teachings. So this guy, I mean, I... This is the sermon's really starting to creep me out because I know these people are believing that this is biblical and this is their mission and this is really what an apostle is, and everything he is saying is a straight up lie, a total twisting, and I mean demonically so, of God's word. Either way, probably works both ways. Your job is to look around heaven. See the culture of heaven. Learn the culture of heaven. How many know you can't bring heaven to earth if you don't experience heaven? Total nonsense. Nowhere in Scripture are we told we're to bring heaven to earth, and therefore that implies we have to experience heaven so we can, we can head up to the heavenly. So you've got to walk around heaven, learn the culture of heaven, so that you can bring it to earth. This is delusional nonsense. So... First of all, how many know you're, you're, when you receive Jesus, you're all going to go to heaven? But how many know the emphasis of Jesus wasn't getting you to heaven, it was getting heaven in you? <laughs> and by the way, if you get heaven in you, you're going to go to heaven because you're in heaven. Something like that. I'm sure there's other dimensions. <laughs> but my point is, is that that prayer is an apostolic prayer. That it would be on earth as it is in heaven. So he says, I sent you out. And what, was the, what were the disciples supposed to do? Heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, and say the kingdom has come near you. How many know they were on the earth to extend the kingdom? How many know they didn't preach the church? They preached the kingdom. Jesus said, I'll build the church, and the gates of Hades or hell will not prevail against it. You extend the kingdom. 127 times, in one way or another, Jesus tells the disciples... Or in the book of Acts, extend the kingdom. How many of you know, we build the church and wonder who's extending the kingdom? If you spend all the time building the church, how many of you know you can't extend the kingdom? I'd like to suggest that all the church is in the kingdom, but not all, not all the kingdoms in the church. This is part of the reason why we see, that why we, we, we call people laymen. Like, you're in lay ministry. Because we see the ministry as the church. And I'd like to propose to you that the ministry is the kingdom. And as soon as you received Jesus, you became a minister. You're part of a royal priesthood. How many know there's no layman in the church? Well, I'm a mechanic. You're in the kingdom. And your job is to what? 
You're being sent out. You're being apostled to do what? To bring the kingdom to your business. You're being apostled. Mm-hmm. Interesting. To extend the borders of the kingdom. Everywhere you go, the king goes. You're an open heaven. The angels ascend and descend. You're like... No, I'm not an open heaven, and no, the angels do not ascend and descend on me. Jesus is Jacob's ladder. Uh-huh. Yeah. Read John 1. You'll get it. Jacob, you're the house of God. You're Bethel. <laughs> you're not just Bethel because you're Bethel. You're Bethel. Even when you go home, you're still Bethel. You can't leave us. Once you come here, you drink the Kool-Aid. You're always Bethel. My point really is, is that you have been apostled by the Lord. You are to, send, you're to go out and extend the borders of the kingdom. The culture of the king is inside of you. The kingdom within you becomes the kingdom around you. It all- Isn't it amazing? He can teach so much doctrine without any biblical text. He just makes stuff up in his own sinful heart and mind. Always begins inside out, doesn't it? But if you get the kingdom in you, the kingdom in you will become the kingdom around you. You take Joseph, you take Joseph, and I understand it's a little different, but the metaphor still works. You take Joseph, you put him in a prison. What does he do? He makes the prison a palace. Why? Because you can't keep the kingdom inside somebody. Where does it say that Joseph made the prison a palace? The Psalms make it clear that Joseph, when he was in prison had a heavy iron shackle around his neck. Doesn't sound like a palace to me. The kingdom spreads. It's just natural that the king, whatever you cultivate around you, in you, will be spread around you. This is an apostolic... We're in an apostolic age. What's the apostolic age? God wants to take the kingdoms of this world and make them the kingdom of our God. Mm. Apostolic age. That's dominionism right there. Making the kingdoms of the world. Yeah, that's dominionism. All part of the apostolic age. Weird. That's normal stuff that you would hear in NAR churches. It makes you think, maybe, just maybe, Bethel might be in the new apostolic reformation. This is where we're going. The goal is to see cities transform for God. Isaiah 61, you know the verse, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to preach the good news of the afflicted, bind up the broken heart, speak release the captives, freedom the prisoners, the favorable year of the Lord, the day of vengeance of our God, to grant to all those who mourn in Zion, give them a garland instead of ashes, a mantle praise instead of a spirit of heaviness, that they might be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. Next verse, Then they shall return and rebuild ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations and rebuild, get this, ruined cities. What happens when the kingdom gets in you? Then you have a responsibility to the city around you. This is the king and the kingdom. Isaiah 60. Arise and shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord is written upon you. Behold, deep darkness will cover the earth. Deep darkness of people, but the Lord arise upon you. His glory will be seen upon you. Nations will come to your light. Kings of the brightness of your rising. What happens in, in verses 18, 19, and Kings will come, bringing their wealth. The wealth of nations will be turned to you. What's he talking about? He's talking about cultural transformation. He's talking about the apostolic mission. No, he's not. How many know that this is an apostolic generation? (laughs) 
Apostolic generation. Hmm. We've come here to change the world. Hmm. Apostolic generation who's come to change the world. Hmm. I, you know, I'm just doing what Jesus said, make disciples, baptizing, teaching all that Christ has commanded. I'm so old school. Yeah, I'm just part of that old wineskin, don't you know? Make disciples of all nations. This is our mission. This is the mission if you should receive it. You're part. You're not just part of a family. You're also part of a kingdom. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, this is getting really weird. I have three minutes. I, I think I'll skip the teaching more. I've 30 pages to go. It'll be a series. I'll finish it someday. I feel like we're supposed to, like, commission you. They're going to get an apostolic commissioning there. Okay. How'd you like to be sent out? Like, I'd like to be sent out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what we should do. Why don't you stand up? All right. So everybody there at Bethel stands up to receive an apostolic commissioning to be sent. You know what I like about prophetic and apostolic ministry? Is we get the privilege of commissioning people. I believe that's part of the mission of a prophet is to commission people. In the Old Testament, the prophets commissioned kings. And I think it's part of what we get to do. Like They anointed them, big difference. Like we actually get to metaphorically knight every one of you. Bill's going to come with a sword. He's going to stay tonight. You're just gonna... He's going to come with a sword and knight them all. What? Touch each one of you. And I'm going to go and pray in the upper room. As I intercede for the basketball finals. You know, when Moses, in fact, where I was going tonight was apostolic authority. Moses is up on the mountain. Joshua's down in the valley. They're fighting the Amalekites. I'm sure you probably at least have probably at least heard the story. Moses lifts his hands. <laughs> this is just my idea. Maybe God said, oh, lift your hands. I don't know. Maybe he yawned. <laughs> oh. The Bible doesn't say. I like the yawn part. He yawns. All of a sudden... Josh starts winning. Losing. Winning. Aaron, her, come here. Winning. Losing. Winning. 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 See, there's something that happens. And my, my next session will be on apostolic authority. See, I think you come, that in order to be commissioned, you come into submission to a mission, and you get commissioned. See, I think... Yeah, I'm glad you said the word, I think, because that's not a biblical concept. That's just a concept you thunk up in your brain. People are like, I think there are Joshua's that are building bigger armies and wondering why they're still losing. When all they have to do is hold up the arms of their leaders. So get to holding up the arms of your leaders, would you? 
But part of the challenge is in denominationalism. It's not even denominationalism, honestly. In 20 and 21st century, it's okay to talk bad about your leaders. We have talk shows. That's the whole talk show is about talking bad about our president, whomever it is. And we've learned that we, we, we have learned something that's not true in the kingdom. You can't disrespect people and have authority. Some people, uh, this is a little exhortation, but some people don't get it that they go to church or they watch it online or whatever. And then dinner time is about critiquing the pastor and you wonder why your children have no respect for you. Whatever you do, don't biblically critique the pastor and say, whoa, he really mishandled that biblical text because then your kids won't respect you. Really? You've taught them not to respect authority. Or you have Fox News or CNN or your favorite news program on where they talk bad about political leaders, about the leaders of our nations, and we have, you have that junk on all day long with your teenage kids in the room and then wonder why your kids talk bad about you. And I'm simply saying is, I'm going to commission you tonight. The ones that it's really going to fall on are people who are actually know how to be in submission to a mission so they can get commissioned. Because you only have as much authority as you submit to. Well, God, the Lord is my shepherd. That's just a nice way of saying, no one tells me what to do. And no one tells me what to do. Works in the world, maybe. In fact, I don't even think it does. I mean, just go to school in any university and say, I'll come when I want, I'll go when I want. And they're like, well, you'll go now. <laughs> Isn't it funny? Like, we'll pull over for a police officer we don't know. But we won't work in the nursery when our pastor asks us to. It's funny to me that people, what people will, you know, they'll, they'll go to work for a person who doesn't know God. By the way, that's all great. Just hear me all the way up. Maybe you work for UPS, you know, you in a brown uniform. You look like a big chocolate bar. You come to work when they tell you. You go home when they tell you. You wear the uniform they tell you. You, you, you take on the dress code they tell you for money. It's just funny to me that people will do for money what they won't do for love. And they come to church and like, no one, you know, the Lord's my shepherd. And the connotation is, no man has authority over me. Then they go to work on Monday for a person who doesn't know God. And do everything they say for money. And tell me they have a problem with authority. Well, I don't, I don't believe in the institution. We're not talking about mental. We're talking about the church. Sorry, I guess I did give you a five-minute message. Because I really do honestly want to commission you, but I know how this works. In order for this commissioning to actually be on you, you actually have to have a humble heart. You actually have to actually respect leaders that are human in your life. So I'm going to pray for you, but I know who this anointing will fall on. And by the way, it's always that way, right? It's the humble and hungry who actually get it. So you can put your hands out. This is uh, Bethel's kind of like receive mode. <laughs> I think it started when, when, during the renewal when we used to say, give me a barrel. 
So Holy Spirit. Done. So you get it. Um, that was um, disturbing beyond all reason. Every biblical text he touched, he twisted and made it say something it don't say. And yet that thing went on for longer than an hour, and he sure did spew a lot of theology. And a lot of it was anchored in the claim that he had an ecstatic encounter with the Lord, and the Lord told him that the denominational thing gone, the apostolic is the new thing. Crazy. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>